Uh, today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 13. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Brothers, that you may lean not on us to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you, did not, that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us uh, apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we, are, we in distribute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Everybody okay? Um, if you don't know me, my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you haven't yet, go and open your Bible to 1 or 1 Corinthians, however you feel comfortable saying that. Um, here, if you, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one. Um, so there's some of these at the desk, at the coffee desk. I'm just going to hope that someone maybe puts a wee stack of them out there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, grab one uh, as you go out. That's our gift to you. Um, yeah, we are making our way through uh, Paul's letter uh, to the church in Corinth. Um, we'll be going over this for quite a few months. Uh, we're going to take a little break for Advent. Um, but we've broken the letter into five different sections uh, with five different titles. Um, and we've entitled this first section, The Imperfect Church. Um, the, the, the first four chapters really are uh, introductory for us, um, and we, we really get to see Paul's main motivation for, for writing to the church, um, and he's calling this, this imperfect church that we see is, is quite imperfect, uh, he's calling them to unity, uh, be, be one of mind uh, and uh, of the same judgment. Um, in chapter 1, verse 10, you really see this. Um, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, uh, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree uh, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So really, their, their, their judgment of others, in particular their leaders that we see, um, is, in, is in need of correction. Um, they are evaluating other people, and they're ultimately evaluating themselves uh, in an improper way. And this improper way of evaluating is leading to, is, is causing divisions in the, in the church. Um, 
as we read this, I find it amazing that um, we are about 2,000 years apart in history from this church in two very different parts of the world in different contexts. But, this, but the, the culture that Paul is addressing here, it, it's, it's not much different than the culture that we uh, experience and engage in today. Um, so Corinth has this culture of evaluating and, and judging one another in a certain way that you and I, you and I also experience. Um, remember the, the culture in Corinth was one of, of elevating yourself, is one of making a name for yourself, uh, of wanting to be made big. It's a culture that, that chased after affluence, that, uh, of attaining wisdom and honor. Um, it's a culture where nobility is king. Um, so if you pass by like a, a temple or a big building, there'd be a big inscription on the temple saying, this is who this, uh, this amazing person that this temple is dedicated to. to. Um, the culture that says, be honored, be be uh, noble and be wise. So they engaged in this, this culture of evaluating each other based on these things. And you and I experience this as well. Um, if you just engage in the city, if you work uh, in, in, in our culture, if you have a phone and you have social media, you'll, you'll know what this is like. Um, sadly, this has been absolutely ingrained into our everyday life. Um, a lot of us from the, the moment we wake up grab your phone, maybe open Instagram, start scrolling, and immediately engage in this evaluating and judging. You know what it's like to, to be evaluated and judged, but all of us know what it's like to also evaluate and, and judge others. Um, we're evaluating one another. Uh, ultimately, we're evaluating ourselves. And, and this is part of, part of life. Paul, uh, Paul isn't saying here that we're never to judge or to evaluate others. Um, but he's, he's challenging the, the standards that they are using in their evaluations. Uh, and he reminds us yet again that ultimately only one person's opinion really matters of us, and that's God's judgment of us. Um, so the question is, how do we evaluate? Um, how do we evaluate others and ourselves? What standards are we to use? Um, on the screen here, I think this is the thesis of, uh, of Paul's section here. Um, he's saying a godly self-evaluation leads to a radically cruciform life. A godly evaluation leads to a radically cruciform life. I'm going to explain that in a minute, but we're really talking about seeing each other, seeing yourself in the right way. Um, today's passage is about having a, a proper evaluation in life. Let me pray for us, and we'll dig in. Um, Father, just as we... We learned last week uh, in, in Paul's section in, in chapter 3, he says we can plant all we want, we can water all we want, but you, Lord, give the growth. And we want to remind ourselves uh, of that truth again today in this very moment, that we need you, that we need you to give us growth. Uh, Spirit, you're, you're, uh, you are the, the one who reveals truth to us. And I pray that you do that now, Lord, for us, that you'd uh, enlighten our hearts, that you take the veil off of our eyes so we can see Jesus more clearly here. Help us to decrease now, Lord, as you increase. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So what does it mean to have a cruciform life? Um, we, we, you might be more familiar with this term that we use, the, a, a gospel-shaped life. 
Um, it's in our mission statement. We desire to be a gospel-shaped community. Um, the, the cruciform life is, is a cross-shaped life. It's, it's a life that's shaped by the cross. It's, it's shaped by the gospel, the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of, of Jesus. It basically means that, that your life looks like Christ's life. And you begin to look more and more like your Savior, Jesus. And, and really, the life of Jesus is the, is the ultimate cross-shaped life, isn't it? Um, uh, through the gospel, um, through his life, his death, his resurrection, not only does he invite us into the kingdom of God, he actually introduces us to the kingdom of God. Um, we, he, he, he shows us that there's a way of living in God's kingdom, in, in God's family, that, that true disciples of Jesus actually live like Jesus. They look like their king. And all through the New Testament, you see that the kingdom of heaven, the way of Jesus, it, it's, it's actually kind of upside down from the world. Really, the world's upside down, and, and the way of Jesus is the right way, but, but the, the way of Jesus, his kingdom, has an opposite set of values from the world. And, and Paul, in this letter, uh, up till now, is constantly pointing them back to this upside-down kingdom. Um, he says, don't cause division. Don't argue over whose leader is better. He's saying, you're using an improper evaluation of them. Which one's wiser? Which one's more eloquent? Which one has, has maybe planted more churches? I follow Paul in that, but I follow Apollos in, in this other way. Paul's saying, listen, he said, God has made foolish the things of this world. And what the world says is wisdom and is actually foolish in the kingdom of God. And the opposite is true. The world looks at the message of the gospel, looks at the word of the cross, and it sees that as foolishness, as folly. But Paul says to us, it's, it's the power of God. It's, it's, it's opposite from the world, this upside-down economy of the kingdom of God. Paul says God actually chose the foolish to shame the wise. He, he chose the weak to shame the strong. God chooses the low and the despised in the world, not, not the high and the mighty. The way of Jesus is, is opposite from the way of Corinth. And, and the reason he, he's designed it this way is so that we can only boast in Christ crucified, that, that we can only boast in what he's accomplished on our behalf. And he goes, he continues on in chapter 2, and he says that even the wisdom that we receive, it, it's not an earthly wisdom. It's actually, he calls it a secret and a hidden wisdom that, that we only understand because he imparts it to us. He's given us a spirit to enlighten us. It's upside down from the world. Again, in chapter 3, he, he continues to admonish their, their arrogance in this. They, they're fighting over who has the better leader. And he says, what are you, what are you arguing about? What are you talking about? These, these servants, he calls them. Even this word leader, it's kind of lost in the New Testament. He says, these servants through whom you believed, the Lord gave them to you. Some of them plant some of the water, but, but, the, but God gives the growth. You, you are nothing without God. You do not grow without God. He's the only one that truly matters. Paul's saying, humble yourselves. Remember your, your, your position in this. And at the end of chapter 3, he reminds them of their position. Here's who you are. He says, let no one boast in men. He says, everything is yours because you are in Christ. Isn't that amazing? He, he's, he's, he's shifting their focus again. He's calling them to humility rather than a puffed-up arrogance. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. 
The standard uh, of, that, that you are evaluating your leaders and ultimately yourselves is, is completely out of whack, Paul is saying. It's a, it's a worldly standard of evaluation. It's a Corinthian standard of evaluation rather than a heavenly standard of evaluation. And here in chapter 4, he's, he's giving this kind of final instruction on proper evaluation. In, in particular, he uses this example of, of their evaluation of their leaders. Um, he uses himself and Apollos as examples here, but I think we can, we can also take this a lesson uh, for ourselves of how to evaluate ourselves because it, next week we're going to see that he urges them to imitate him. So he's saying this is how this applies to us, but the leaders of the church should just be examples of how the rest of the, 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 the flock should live so we can apply this to ourselves as well. Look at verses 1 and 2. There standards of their evaluations are off. They're, they're viewing their leaders in, in, in an improper way. So Paul tells them, this is the correct way to view us. He says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, view us as servants and stewards. So they were using a worldly or a Corinthian standard of evaluation. They were, they were actually elevating their leaders. They, they, were, they had this kind of man-centered allegiance. And, and I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And Paul says, what are you showing allegiance to men for? Don't view us as, as, as captains, as masters. No, view us as servants and as stewards. Look at that first one. View us as servants of Christ. That word's really interesting um, it actually means an, an attendant or a, uh, a, ship's cr- uh, a member of the ship's crew. It means an under rower. And an under rower would be a slave at the bottom of a ship. And, and, and an under rower's job would be just to, to keep rowing and to keep the ship going in the right direction. They'd often be chained to their oar. They'd often just die chained to their oar. Everyone at the top of the ship benefits from the under rower's striving and their hard work, but they don't give the under rower any praise. They have an incredibly job, the under rower, but they are viewed very differently from the captain of the ship, aren't they? He says, view us as, as stewards. That word steward means an administrator or a manager of a household. As often a slave uh, who, would, who would manage his master's house and um, he wasn't the master. The possessions that he would manage were not his. Um, he's, he's just the steward of the possessions. His job was to, to make sure the household is run well, make sure everyone is, is nourished and, and fed, uh, make sure everyone is well looked after. You, you view the, the steward of the household much differently than you do the, the master of the household. The master is the owner of all the resources in the house. The steward simply holds the keys to the resources. He, he was often the most senior, the most trusted of the servants, but his, his responsibility involved the correct use of the resources to equip the house for, to, to do the master's work. Paul's calling the church to have a correct view of their leaders, not as masters and as captains that they are under, but as servants and as stewards of God that are given to them to equip them for the master's work. Notice the nuance of, of who the leaders are servants and stewards of. This is important. 
they're not primarily servants and stewards of the church. They are servants and stewards of Christ, of, of the message of the gospel. Paul and Apollos are not primarily there to serve the church, to steward the church's resources and the church's reputation. They're there to serve Christ and to steward God's resources. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. The word is, the Greek word is pistos. It, it means faithful. So this is what's required of the servants and the stewards, that they be found faithful to God. They be found faithful to Jesus. Notice he doesn't say fruitful. I found that interesting. And so they're not judged based on how big the church gets. They're not judged based on, on their great reputation. They're not judged even by how many people get saved and baptized in the church over the years. They're judged by their faithfulness to God. I love that idea of we get to heaven and Joe Bloggs over here who's so greatly honored. Who, who is this guy? Didn't read any of his books. Didn't, read any, didn't listen to any of his sermons on, on a big podcast. No, he's just the most faithful guy in his, in his city. It reminds me of Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Um, in that parable, the master gives three of his servants um, a, a number of talents or an a, amount of money to, to steward while the master is away. And he gives three of the, the servants a number of talents, different amounts to each one, doesn't really matter. And two of the servants, they go and they multiply what they've been given. They steward their resources well. And one of the servants uh, buries his, what he's been given in the ground until the master returns. And the master returns from his journey, and, and the three servants present to the master how they have stewarded his resources. And, and the two who stewarded the resources well are rewarded. But the one who buried his resources in the ground is not. But what's interesting is what the master says to the two good stewards. He do, does he say, hey, well done, you've, you've been very fruitful while, while I've been away. No, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. With much, you've, with, you've been faithful over a little. I will set over you much. Enter the joy of your master. They're judged on the, based on their faithfulness. It's our first point. We are servants and stewards of Christ, called to be faithful to him and to his message. As, as you read this, particularly in the next few verses, and you almost get a sense of how liberating this is for Paul to understand, um, that, that we don't have to worry so much about other people's evaluations of us. Uh, they're, they're, their judgments uh, of Paul don't really matter much to him. They're the only opinion that really holds any weight to him is, is the Lord's opinion, what, 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 what God thinks of him. Look at verses 3 to 5. Paul unpacks this a bit more, that only God's opinion truly matters. It's, it's the one who actually commissioned Paul to his service is the only one who is properly qualified to assess the degree of his faithfulness. And so he goes on to say in verse 3, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I, I think we can safely translate this as, hey, for me, it could, it could, not, matter, it could not matter less what the world thinks of me. You and your human judgments hold very little weight. 
Um, I, I think you need to uh, be careful here. Um, I, we shouldn't read this as Paul completely dismissing other people's opinions of him uh, or, or stubbornly refusing to listen to any criticism. What you, might, what you think doesn't matter. It's only about what God thinks. No, we, like, because we read in the New Testament that the church should evaluate their leaders. Paul himself gives us guidelines for how to choose our, our, our leaders. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, he says, make sure your elders uh, are, meet this certain qualification. He's not refusing criticism or, or evaluation. Rather, what he's doing is critiquing the, the standard of their evaluation. He, he's calling them back to this, this upside-down kingdom been, they've been using a Corinthian uh, standard of evaluation rather than God's standard of evaluation. They're critiquing his, his eloquence. They're critiquing his, his social status rather than his faithfulness. He's saying their standard of evaluation, it does, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it's too low. It's too worldly. He's saying uh, to his readers that, that the church in Corinth has no right to judge him in the way that they are by the standards that they are using, and so he's not going to pay attention to their judgments. His logic is that he's, he's Christ's servant, not theirs. That's why he can never be judged by any human court. Ultimately, their judgment of him is, is irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. But uh, the, the next bit, I think, shows his heart in this, because there, there's another judgment that is also irrelevant Along with the, the Corinthians' judgment is Paul's judgment that's also irrelevant, his judgment of himself. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Again, I don't think, I don't think Paul's saying, hey, I'm perfect in this, and I don't think he, Paul's saying that he's never self-critical. Um, read Romans 7 sometime. Paul's and he's very aware of the struggle in his own heart. Like in, in, in Romans 7, he's, he says, I mean, I do what I don't want to do, and what I should do, I, 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 I don't do. He experiences this battle of his, his sinful, his flesh versus this call to holiness. Paul's, he's appropriately self-critical. The Christian life is an examined life. I think he's saying that in this situation, his conscience is clear as a faithful underrower to the Corinthians. He's, but he's saying that only, he's only holding himself to, to God's standard. Paul's constantly examining himself to, to keep his conscience clear, but he, he knows this one big truth, that only God sees what's in his heart. God sees sins that, that may well be hidden um, from Paul's own eyes. God is, is, is aware of ingrained evil in, in, in his life that Paul might be personally unaware of. So neither any human court nor even the servants himself is qualified to judge his work. He says in verse 4, it's the Lord who judges me. He who commissioned and equipped the leader is the only one who's capable of properly assessing and rewarding the leader. Only God's opinion truly matters. So Paul's saying, quit boasting about your, your human leaders. Don't boast about them. And he also says, quit judging them based on your human standards. He's more eloquent. Ah, he seems much wiser. But look at the size of this, this leader's church. Paul's warning against this kind of judgment because you don't know what's inside a leader's heart. 
In verse 5, he says, don't judge prematurely because your vantage point is, is limited. He says, do not, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So man, we look on outward appearances, but God will disclose the purposes of the heart. Don't judge prematurely before the Lord comes, Paul says. See, there's this theme of the, of the church in, Corinthian, uh, in Corinth just being ahead of themselves, constantly wanting it now. They, they wanted uh, to, to have this super, this glorified church now, full of wisdom, full of power, full of impressive spirituality. But Paul is saying here that the test is not now. The, the, the test is on the last day, uh, what he calls the, the time, when the examination takes place, when Jesus returns and, and judges his servants. And Christ is far more interested in the hidden motives of the heart rather than external signs. We learn this in the Sermon on the Mount. It's about what's on the inside, not on the outside. His criteria of judgment will be, uh, not be based on outward success, but on godly faithfulness. Paul's saying to, to judge his servants prematurely and by our own worldly standards is to arrogantly usurp God's authority. It's heavy stuff, but, but what an encouragement that last sentence is of verse 5. It says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. God, he loves to, to praise and reward his faithful servants. This is amazing. He loves to say to his servants, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. Enter the joy of your master. Come, receive the joy, uh, receive the reward of your faithfulness. Whenever God sees the faithful service of a heart motivated by love, he's a kinder judge than the hard-nosed critics in Corinth. And Paul understands this. Look at verse 6. Our next point is, if God is our only judge then Scripture is our only standard. It says, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So again, Paul is, is calling them to humility rather than arrogance. Remember who you are. Remember your position. We are servants. We are stewards of God. We're not in the position of judging so don't be tempted to, to use extra-biblical revelation. Don't be tempted to, to use a worldly set of standards for evaluation of others and ourselves. Don't, be, don't go beyond what is written. As D.A. Carson paraphrases this, keep your finger on the text. I was reading yesterday, I was sitting in my chair, I, I was reading through this text, and my son Abe, he's seven, he's learning how to read, and he's constantly watches me so he gets his Bible and he comes sits on the chair next to me and he starts reading and he has to keep his finger right on the text and, and, and I think Paul's saying that keep your finger on the text don't, don't, don't bring in your worldly um, extra biblical uh, standards of evaluation what was happening was the, the Corinthians were, were being puffed up in themselves they were arrogantly thinking that, that they, could, they could judge what only God can judge and Paul says in the previous chapter that no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirits of God. There's only one way for us humans to, to ever know what's in his mind. And that's by the revelation of his spirit. 
So don't be puffed up and arrogant in your evaluations, Paul says. Have humility. Depend on the Spirit. Submit to His authority and His standards given to us in His inspired Word. Scripture is our only authority. Don't be coming with your, uh, your other ways of evaluating and judging one, uh, who, another one who isn't scriptural, that isn't scriptural. Look at verses 7 and 8. He continues to press them on their arrogance. This is really the, the, the crux of their problem, and that they had failed to recognize their position as recipients of God's grace. Let me say that again. This is the crux of their problem. They had failed to recognize their position as recipients of God's grace. So the, the root of their, uh, uh, the problem with their evaluation sickness was pride. And, and what pride does in our hearts is it makes us forget how much we are in need of God's grace. Pride convinces us that we are fit to judge others by our own set of standards. Pride convinces us that we have all we need apart from God. So Paul asks them this, the, these three questions, a bit of a who, what, and why. They're, they're evaluating these, the, these leaders. They're judging them. And Paul says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you did receive it, kind of begging the question here, why, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We, we humans have this, have this thing that we like to do where we are constantly seeking to present ourselves as superior to others. We want to be at the top. We don't want to be at the bottom. We, it, whether it's in intelligence or status or possessions, our personality, maybe our appearances, popularity, our abilities, in any number of ways, we seek to, to evaluate ourselves, to, to, to elevate ourselves at the expense of others. But the gospel of Christ crucified on our behalf, it's the great equalizer, isn't it? It does away with all pride in the human heart. So the correct response uh, to Paul's question here for the believer, he asked them, what do you have that you have not received? The, the, the correct answer there is nothing. Everything I have, anything I have, is God's gift of grace to me. He's given me my, my, my health and my strength, whether it's opportunities to serve, my abilities, my skill, my friends and my family in my life, even my very own salvation is a gift of grace from God. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. Or back what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 28 in 1 Corinthians, God chose what is low and despised in this world. That should humble you. God chooses what is low and despised in this world to bring to nothing things that are so that, what? No human being can boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who becomes to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. He becomes these things to us. So that it is written, again, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You have nothing to boast in except what Jesus has done for you. Life is grace. Everything you have in life has been given to you because God is gracious to you, because he's merciful to you. He gives us good things that we do not deserve. He gives us good things that we have not earned. 
Paul's saying, in your evaluations, remember, it's all God's grace. So there's no room for boasting. And then, just as we come to close, look at verses 9 to 13. Paul, he's been challenging their, their system or their standards of evaluating others and themselves. And he's, he's pointed out that, that the root of their problem is pride. That they, they've bought into this, this economy of Corinth that says we should strive after position, that we should strive after honor and glory rather than, than understanding the economy of the kingdom of God, which says that the first should be, must be last. And he goes on this, in, in this section to remind them yet again of this upside-down nature uh, of the Christian faith. He, he, he reintroduces them. This is what the faith looks like. This is what the, a cruciform life looks like. He talks about the, the paradoxes of the gospel here, that the way up is down, that the way of weakness is actually the way of strength, that the way of poverty is actually the way of riches. And, and in these first few verses, he actually speaks to them quite sarcastically or hyperbolically. Um, they've, they've bought into this idea that, that they should chase after nobility and status. And he says in verse 8, hey, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. With that, you did reign so that we might share with you, um, sh- share, the, share the rule with you. This is what the Corinthian culture has told them to strive after. But then in verse 9, he, he flips it and he, re- he introduces them again to the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. He says, this is what the, the gospel-shaped life looks like. He says, for I think that God exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. It's completely opposite than the Corinthian culture. I think Paul's point in this section is he's saying, now is not the time for glory, now is the time for suffering. Now is not the time for glory. Now is the time for suffering. Again, you see this theme of the Corinthians getting ahead of themselves. So before, they're, they're trying to judge before the time is right. And they're also trying to, to claim glory before the time is right. And I, because I, I, I want to be fair, with, fair to them, I want to um, kind of give them a little bit of, of credit. Uh, because um, is there glory for those who are in Christ Jesus? Is there glory for the Christian? The answer is yes, absolutely. And we, we read that. Even, um, and we're told all through the New Testament that there's this immense hope of future glory for those who are in Christ. Paul writes in Romans 8 that there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think the Corinthians maybe hear that and they're like, yes, that sounds amazing. Even Jesus in, in John chapter 5 he taught, uh, he says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He comes not into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Wow, no judgment passing from death to life? Yes. There's these amazing uh, truths that Christians can have hope in. And in Romans 8, I think this is on the screen, Steve. Romans 8, Paul says, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
So God, who was once far off, we now can approach him and call him Daddy. We've received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is amazing, isn't it? If you are a Christian, if you have placed your hope in Jesus, you are now declared a child of God, a joint heir with Christ, a future inheritor of all things. What glory we have been promised. And I think this is where these immature believers, they, they've kind of been blown away by, these, by this truth. And it's, they, they've been enthralled with the promise of such glory. And it's also very convenient because that, it lines up with the, with the culture of Corinth. Attain glory, attain honor. But they didn't understand the full truth of what Paul is preaching in Romans 8. Because you keep reading in verse 17 and you get Paul's the whole truth. He says, The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified with Him. Here again is this upside-down economy of the kingdom of God where, where glory is always preceded by suffering. First there's suffering, and then there's glory, just like Jesus' life. This is the cruciform life. This is the cross-shaped life that we are called to live right now. For the call to worship last week, I read um, uh, the prayer, the Valley of Vision, and it talks about this, the gospel paradox, that the way down is actually the way up. The way to, uh, that, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross, think of that, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Paul's giving us this picture of the upside-down kingdom, and, and listen to me, the most important thing about this part of the, uh, uh, about this section is it's actually a fingerprint of a person. Everything that Paul says in this, this section of the text can only be said because Christ said and embodied it in his life. He's showing us Jesus here. He's describing Jesus. Verse 9, God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. He's describing this picture of, uh, uh, of people being carted into the Colosseum to be executed, to be devoured by wild animals. So when the Romans would go and, and conquer a, a city, you'd come back and you'd triumphantly back into the city, uh, all the riches, and at the very end, there'd be those who would be crucified, those who would be uh, brought into the Colosseum to be executed. And Paul is saying, that's us. God has exhibited all these things that he wants us to understand in the person of Jesus because it was actually a reality to the person of Jesus. Jesus was the great apostle who was not only sentenced to death but experienced death. He was exhibited as a spectacle to and for the world. Paul says that we must share in the suffering of Christ in order that we might be glorified with him as well. 
So in verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Christ was, Christ was the wisdom of God that was considered foolishness by men. He became weak, and in that very weakness exhibited his greatest strength. He was subject to the ultimate disrepute so that sinners like you and I can receive the ultimate honor. He's painting a picture of Jesus here. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is, this is Jesus as described in the Gospels. and This is how we are meant to look as well. So remember that the Corinthians were prematurely getting to the glory before entering into the suffering. But Paul says in verse 11, to this present hour, not, all, not, not, uh, not, not yet, but in the present hour, right now, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. Just like our Savior Jesus, first comes the suffering and then comes the glory. The way of Jesus is opposite from the way of Corinth. The way of Jesus is opposite from the way of Belfast. It's upside down. Look at verse 12. This is a picture of Jesus. This is Jesus on the cross. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Can, like, can Paul get any lower in the metaphorical barrel here? He's, he's, we've become the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul loves using this, this language. He's, he's using a word that's sometimes translated as rubbish, as garbage, as mud, as excrement. Saying that the, the, the treasures of the kingdom are, are, are the, the, the trash of the world. The, the trash of the world become the treasures in the kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, which, which is incredibly hopeful, isn't it, for those who don't measure up? The trash of the world is made into the treasure of the kingdom because Jesus, the ultimate treasure, became like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things, and we follow in his footsteps. Do you see how opposite this culture is from Corinth, from Belfast. The culture of Corinth was one where the most treasured were those at the top, the honorable ones, the wise ones, the noble ones. The culture of the kingdom of God is one is where the treasured are the lowly, they're the poor, they're the meek. They're the ones, the, the marginalized in society. They're the ones who are hated in society. The scum of the world. I wonder if this describes us. What are we chasing after? To look honorable or to be faithful? You might be asking yourself, um, what, what's the connection here between um, uh, living this radically cruciform life and having a church with no divisions? How can we, how can we be called to enter into such suffering? You keep reading in, in, in Romans 8. It says, provided we must suffer with him in order that we might be glorified in him. Where's the hope in that? He goes on, he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time, of now, 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The hope of future glory. When you have a church that's full of believers who grasp this upside-down reality, that there's not a contest of who's the greatest. The only contest is who can serve the most. Paul talks about outdoing one another and showing honor. The first must be last. And you see, a life that embraces the paradigm of grace the way up is down. The first must be last. To, to be a leader, one must follow. To gain glory, one must suffer. To be elevated, one must be humble. If we're to embrace this paradox, it means that we're completely fine without ever getting any of the credit. We, we would be fine lifting others up as long as, as the team wins. We can make a meaningful contribution without necessarily ever having to be noticed. When you have a church who grasps that upside-down reality, there's no divisions in that church. There's, there's service to one another. There's faithfulness to God. Let's have a proper evaluation. Let's see each other in the right way. Let's see ourselves in the right way. Recipients of grace, humble, here to serve. Let's stand and, and, and pray.